welcome to Tiny Voice Talks with me, Tori Bono. And today, Tiny Voice is talking about nature-based learning. And I'm really excited to be joined by Dr. Alex Barabel. So welcome, Dr. Alex. Hi, you can call me Alex. So how are you today? Uh, oh, I'm going to have to be really honest and tell you that I'm tired. I have four um, eight, nine-year-olds um, in the house. So yes, I haven't had much sleep. <laughs> well, hopefully this this episode will wake you up, keep you going, because you are talking about one of your greatest passions, which is getting us really, well, I say engaging with nature, but it's not engaging with nature. It's a lot deeper, isn't it? But before we start that, I'm going to ask, who is Dr. Alex Barabal? Right. I always start my life story with with where I was born. I was born in Greece and I I grew up in Greece up until I was about 14 uh, when I moved to to the UK. Um, And I say that because I think it is part of who I am and Actually, it's it's come to be part of my research too. I lived in England for, for most of my uh, young adulthood, um, and I wanted to be a teacher. So I studied uh, to be a teacher, and I worked as a teacher in England and then internationally for about 10 years, mostly in the early years. And I use early years actually quite broadly using the WHO definition of zero to eight. And I know it's slightly different in England, but um, yes. So zero to eight, I taught for about 10 years. And then I got involved in research. So we had some researchers come into the school where I was teaching and I was just so interested in what they were doing. So I said, well, can, can I join you? Can I ask questions too? And I did. And I did a little bit of being a research assistant studied for my master's and then started doing research myself, including my PhD, which was on nature connection. And I love everything to do with nature and everything to do with children in nature and how the two interact because it's an interaction. It's not just a one-way relationship there. For the last seven years, I've been in teacher education and in, in academia, doing research engaging in educating teachers, working with student teachers and working with teachers who have come back to academia to learn how to ask questions themselves. Very busy and very interesting. And already I've got something that sort of pinged into my head, which is you just said about children having an interaction with nature, that it's not a one-way thing. So what do you mean by that? I often use the um, the term on the construct of affordances in nature. And that's basically about the fact that nature is an open-ended resource. And as you engage with it, it changes. And when you engage with it in different ways, the interaction with it changes a lot. So for example... A baby interacts with nature in a different way that a toddler does and in a different way than an older child does. Think about a child initially touching a tree or climbing a tree or climbing in different ways. Um, So the interaction changes as the child's abilities change, their skill changes, their perception of nature changes. And I think that's what's amazing about using nature in learning is that it's this interaction and this open-ended resource. That makes so much sense. It really does. And I know that 
you talk in your book. And yes, listeners, there is a book, which um, I will make sure is on the show notes, the link. And it's called Nature-Based Learning. And you talk in that about the fact that actually, it's not about us going out to nature and, you know, engaging, sort of, we talk often about getting, going back to nature. And you're saying it's not about going back to nature, because it's very much part of us. And I suppose that's all about that interaction. So I, one of the things I really want to kind of highlight is the difference between nature contact and nature connection. So nature contact is literally, you know, if you, if you go into a park and you sit there and you could be exercising, you could be chatting with a friend, you could be having a picnic, that's nature contact. You are around nature, you are in nature. There are many benefits to nature contact. There are many benefits to our physiology. There are many benefits to our psychology. However, there's also what's called nature connection, the construct of nature connection. This is, this is a construct I work with, which is not just being in nature, but really interacting with the natural world and building a relationship with it, feeling part of it, caring for it, loving it, looking after it, uh, feeling that it's part of your identity, part of your soul. And nature connection I said nature contact is very good for us, but nature connection is also very good for us. We know that people who are nature connected, who feel close to the natural world or who feel that the natural world is part of them, are happier, they have higher uh, rates of, of well-being, different types of well-being, life satisfaction, they feel more satisfied with their lives, they feel more optimistic for the future, they have greater self-acceptance as well. It's amazing how feeling part of the natural world has such an impact on who we are and how we feel about ourselves and about others. So within the book, you talk a lot about that research of well-being, and I suppose that comes back to your love of research. But what other research is out there that really indicates that we as teachers need to be getting the children, not just contacting nature, because I often think, you know, years ago, it would be, you know, we'd take our art books outside and we'd sit outside and we'd draw a picture of trees and that'd be all. We've been out in nature, everyone. Um, but what about that connection? So actually, that's a, a lot of my research is really uh, on that. First of all, we know that it's important to connect. As I said, it supports well-being. And actually, the other part of it, it supports pro-environmental behaviors. Ah. So if we think about the fact that we're facing, globally, we're facing two crises. One is the mental health crisis, and the other one is the climate crisis, um, including the biodiversity uh, collapse, etc. One of the ways to see ourselves out of this is by supporting nature connection in our children because on the one hand it supports well-being and on the other hand it's driving pro-environmental behaviors that motivates children to look after the natural world taking this as granted okay it's great to to connect to, to support our children's connection with nature then the second question is well how do we do it mm. you know how do I do this and actually, what you just said, which was the, uh, the taking your sketchbooks out, art, we know engaging with nature through art and through beauty is one of the ways to connect, to, to, to support connection with the natural world. So that's not just contact, that's yes, actual that's right, connection. that's supporting. <laughs> oh, go me with my connection. I didn't even know I was doing it. That's right. That is supporting connection with the natural world. So the, another thing that I want to say is, 
I, I really dislike the 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 image of uh, or the sort of idea of we need to connect children with nature as if you know children are um, a device that you have to plug into nature and then they automatically mm. connect. All we can do is support them in building that relationship, that connection to nature. Now we're lucky in that children are actually predisposed to connect to the natural world. They are naturally inclined to form that relationship. So we don't have to force it, but we need to provide those opportunities. That's why I talk about supporting that process to connect with the natural world. I do I do talk about, I, I often say that we don't connect to nature just as we don't connect to people simply by riding on a busy bus. You know, just being on a busy bus doesn't mean that you form relationship to those people around you. Um, we also don't connect to nature simply by being in it. So there are actions we need to take. And we go back to that interaction with nature. So one of the ways is, as you said, through beauty and art. So we know that's appreciating beauty in nature through art, through photography, through talking about what's beautiful in nature, through noticing the beautiful things in nature is one of the ways to build connection. There are other ways as well, and I'm, I'm happy to talk about them. Um, but oh, please do, please do. I'm I'm writing notes. Everyone always knows that I write notes when I'm listening because I find it fascinating. So yeah, what else is there? Yeah, so um, empathy towards nature is another way. Mm. So um, putting ourselves in the shoes of plants and animals. So thinking, getting children thinking about. Well, you know, how do you think this animal feels? Um, what do you think the the impact of hurting or killing this animal would be, etc.? So, empathy towards the natural world is a way to to build that connection as well. A third way is actually sustained contact. So, instead of just going to a different site each time you go out, start visiting the same site, looking at the changes through you know, because of the weather, start building what's called place connection and actually start allowing children to have ownership of a space. You have that ownership, then you start building that empathy. You're noticing, so you're looking at beauty. And that's really that sustained contact with that one space is building that place connection and that nature connection as well. And the other way is mindfulness. And mindfulness is that idea of being in the moment, non-judgmentally and really noticing through the senses. So especially for children, it's really sensory. So going out there and touching and smelling and taking the time to engage with the natural world, not just through sight, which is one of the, the, the ways that we often engage, but actually through all our other senses as well. What you're saying makes so much sense. And the noticing really struck me because I was teaching um, my children art this week and we were looking at the work of Gustav Klimt, we were looking at the work on his um, silver, um, silver birch trees. And it was really interesting. They hadn't noticed that we had those trees out in our school field at all. They just didn't know that we had these trees. And I said to them, you know, has anyone seen them? And they were telling me exactly where they were and all these different places they'd been to with Bridget Silver Birch. And I said, have you, have you, have you noticed? And they, and when I, from my um, teaching assistant said, you know, because I said, oh, do you know where they are? And, and he said, oh, there are some out in the field. And the children went, oh, really? <laughs> and they, it's really funny because they've got it around them. 
but they're not necessarily noticing and, as you say, connecting with that space that they see. And actually, we were talking before the podcast, my children at our school are really lucky. They have immense amounts of outdoor space. But actually, there are other children in other schools, um, as we were also discussing, that have very limited outdoor space, aren't they? Yeah, I I really want to talk about this noticing because it's actually very, very natural not to notice things. You know, we have... We have limited bandwidth to use a, to use the, the technology analogy, um, and actually, you know, if we notice everything that's around us, that's actually incredibly, um, you know, it just overloads the system. So, what noticing is is actually directing our attention towards something, ah, right? Ah, okay. It's been directed now. They all know there are sort of birch that's trees, and they're right. all very excited. So that's right. So what I want to say to teachers is that that you can actually bring that in, and once you've directed the attention once or twice, children will, will automatically start doing it themselves. Uh, and one of the ways that I've, I've I've commonly said, especially in urban schools, it's um, when you have that shift from not noticing nature to noticing nature, you actually start seeing that it's everywhere you go everywhere you look so the minute you have that shift of saying so on my way to school you know in an urban environment I noticed that there is moss growing on the side of the wall that's part of nature or I noticed that in the cracks of the pavement there's little weeds coming out where you start noticing you know different birds different insects potentially and the minute you start noticing it's kind of an avalanche your, your kids will just keep saying and I noticed this and I noticed that and and you start seeing it everywhere and you start seeing it in in you know the the, the spider that visits your your classroom at some point or you know or the fly or the bee or whatever it is and suddenly that that noticing you know it, it's a shift it's a big shift to see that nature is everywhere nature is is in our classrooms it's in our playground as urban as your playground may be it will inevitably have part of nature and actually at the end of the day we are part of nature we are human animals and so you know automatically your school will be full of nature because it is full of children and adults and people but uh, it's a shift it's a shift that I really really encourage people to to try and make Now, I want to also touch on the fact that often in schools, we sort of will take our classes places, um, you know, so for example, we'll have forest school for the class or, you know, we'll take the children outside as a class. But what you also talk about in the book is how important it is for certain individuals or groups of children. And you especially talk about neurodivergent children and their engagement with, uh, you know, the outdoors. Yes. So, um one of the things I really wanted to do with the book was to to share the research and kind of explain why it's important um, and go beyond the how so that teachers actually understand the purpose of why they might want to engage certain individuals or in certain activities. We do know that there are benefits to nature contact for individuals who have ADHD. So actually, uh, nature is very good for everyone's attention, whether you have ADHD or not. It actually restores our attention because of what's called the soft fascinations in the natural world. And the more natural an environment is, the more that effect is, is pronounced. 
So it's going to be different if you actually manage to to take your class to a very natural space like a, a forest, as opposed to um, your nature garden, your potted plants. But there is an effect, uh, nonetheless. It's uh, it's there's a dose response, but there is an effect there. So we do know that, for example, a short uh, walk in the natural world tends to immediately reduce um, ADHD symptomatology. Um, to a similar extent as medication does, so we've got we've got studies on this. Uh, so you can you can use it actually as a tool for those children who struggle to focus, for example. So if you do, for example, have your forest school sessions, you might want to um, use timetabling to do a task that requires focus after they've been out to forest school. This is just a I don't know. Um, j- just an example. That's really interesting. That's, <laughs> that's fascinating, actually. I'm just like, wow, that's 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 basically really totally shift setting. If we talk about younger children, we do know that being in nature it actually optimizes development. So again, another mind blowing study. I mean, I, I read these and I go, wow. <laughs> so I'm really I'm really happy that you're appreciating. So study from Norway actually, where they looked at 600 young children, some of whom had been to outdoor nursery schools and some of them who'd been in indoor settings, and they looked at their cognitive abilities once they've gone into school. So three to four years. Later, later. And what they found was the ones that had spent the most time outdoors had much better self-regulation and much better attention skills as those uh, uh, are measured through working memory tests, etc. So if we're thinking about optimal development, actually, I think, you know, children develop optimally, both cognitively and emotionally, in natural environments. So I'm a big proponent of forest schools for and um, forest kindergartens. But also, you know, again, it doesn't have to be one or the other. It's not all or nothing. Within traditional settings, outdoor time, quality outdoor time is really, really important. Now, I also want to ask you about risky play areas, because I thought that was really interesting that you threw that in there. So talk to me about risky play areas and wild teaching. Risky play doesn't have to be in natural environments, but going back to what I said about nature being a very open-ended resource, um, it's, you know, having risky play in natural environments is, is a natural fit, is a, is a very nice fit. Risky play and there's a lot of research coming out at, at the moment, is abs- absolutely paramount in helping our children develop risk management skills and self-regulation skills. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you don't practice something, you know, you don't get better at it. So being able to practice risk management in the small things, do I climb this tree? You know, is this branch going to hold me? Uh, do I use this knife? Uh, how do I use this knife? All those things, all these small decisions that children have to make when they're engaging in uh, I mean, bushcraft or risky play or whatever it is, um, builds that muscle, that risk management muscle that children need to have. So later on, you know, when they're young adults and they have to make these decisions for themselves, they have exercised this autonomy, they have exercised the, this, this risk management ability, that skill. But also we know now, and this is research from Professor Helen Dodd, that risky play is absolutely so important for 
mental health reasons, for developing self-regulation, being able to regulate our moods, being able to uh, regulate excitement and fear and all these and worry, Mm. potentially what we think of as negative emotions and learning to manage them. Uh, And learning to manage those negative emotions is really, really good for children. Risky play is difficult. And I used to talk about risky play a lot. And then I had kids uh, and (laughs) I kind of (laughs) sit on the sidelines watching them. And, you know, it is uncomfortable. And I want to I want to say that, you Mm. know, uh, if you're an adult looking after kids who are engaging in risky play, it's not always a comfortable experience. And it's very good to acknowledge that if you're a parent as well, it's very good to acknowledge that it's not a breeze. But we need to learn to regulate our own responses and how we share our concerns and actually trust in our children. My first response is, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, you know. Uh, But actually, I need to regulate that and say, okay, you know, he's done this before. He's had, he's climbed this tree. He knows the skills. Give instructional feedback instead of saying, oh, don't do this or, oh, be careful, you're going to fall. Give instructional feedback and say, okay, have a look at that branch. Do you think it's going to be able to hold you? You know, that supports that process of risk management in the child. And it actually also um, makes them feel, builds their self-esteem. You're able to do this. I trust in you. It tells the child that you trust in their in their skills. So yes, Risky Play, I think um, a fantastic resource for um, all ages. What's fascinating talking to you is that, um, you know, our connection and contact with nature doesn't just bring about well-being. It brings about so much more. And when you're talking about it enables children to concentrate better, it helps them to actually learn to risk manage, it helps them to self-regulate. All of these things, the stuff that we are trying all the time to teach children in our classrooms. And yet actually there's a very, I want to say simple way of doing it because actually as as you say, our engagement with nature is a natural one. It's there. It's something that as human beings, we do naturally. What's important, um, I think, is to quite often I see, uh, you know, I I see uh, articles or somebody talking and saying, you know, engaging with nature will build your self-esteem, build your fine motor skills, uh, you know, help with your attention, etc. But actually, what I want to say is, certain types of engagement would do this. And what I wanted to do with the book is say, if you're trying to achieve this, this is how you should engage with nature. If you'd like your children to build self-regulation skills, this is the way, you know, it's through risky play. Um, if you want your ch- your children to build attention, actually one of the ways you can do it, instead of taking them outdoors, is actually using natural soundscapes in the, in the classroom. So that, you know, putting on a a natural playlist, for example, while they're working. It can have a calming effect. It can help some children focus. And you need to see because uh, there may be children who find it very distracting as well. So do, do, you know, it needs to be, you kind of need to, what's the word, curate in some ways the, the, the natural experience, the nature experience yes. your kids have for the purpose that you want to achieve. So it's not just that if you go to outside to nature, immediately your kids are going to have better well-being you know it's not just it's not like that no 
But your book, I think, really helps us to understand how to do that. So listeners, as I say, the link to the book is in the show notes, so just go there. Now, before I let you go, Alex, I need to know the answer to my last question, which you slightly panicked about when I said to you before we recorded. But by now, I know you have that answer. And the question is this, if you could have been taught by anyone, living or dead, who would have been your perfect teacher? Can I just say that I'm incredibly lucky. I have had such amazing teachers and mentors my whole life. So um, in, in some ways, I don't know if I would change any of my teachers. I really have been extremely lucky. I'm actually going to be a little bit corny here and say, for me, the best teacher is nature. And I, I was very lucky in that through my family life, not so much my school life, but through my family life, I had nature as a teacher from a very young age. I engaged with the natural world with a lot of curiosity fed by my, my dad. Um, I, I engaged with the natural world in open-ended ways. And nature was and is my teacher still. And actually, I really, really wish for all children to have that opportunity in life. I don't think that was a corny answer. That was truly a perfect answer, given the topic of this podcast. Alex, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking to me all about nature-based learning. Thank you so much for having me and for your insightful questions. <laughs> 